All right. So we last week we finished the book of Ephesians where we exposited, you know, verse by verse, passage by passage through a book of the Bible. And that's normally what we do here. Uh, we want to make sure that we're preaching the Bible God's way, the way that he intended it to be read, studied, and preached. Sometimes, though, it's helpful to do a topical series to address topics that we deal with in this day and age. And so for the next two weeks, we're doing a topical series that is drawn out from the scriptures, but a variety of them. And the topic is, the, the topical series is called Doomsday Preppers. Now, I don't know if you've watched the show. Um, I have actually never seen the show myself. But when you think of Doomsday Preppers, you think about these people that are preparing for what? For doomsday, right? For the apocalypse or for some kind of incredible event to happen. And so there are a variety of things that they do. They store up food in a basement. They, you know, buy guns and ammunition and gas masks and all sorts of crazy things. But, you know, as Christians, how do we prepare in a day, an evil day, where it does seem to be declining? Um, society, at least morally, seems to be declining at a rapid rate. And there is some uncertainty. There is some instability, you'd have to admit, uh, in politics, in, in government, even in society today, there are sharp divisions, issues that are polarizing people. And so what have a lot of Christians in California been doing? Well, they've been packing their bags and moving to Idaho. <laughs> That's how they're preparing for doomsday. I want to offer us some other options uh, this morning by God's word. Hopefully you don't all pack your bags and move to Idaho because then we'd be left without a church. But um, there is, it is helpful for us as Christians to prepare in an evil day. It's helpful sometimes for us to back up and just look at history and see that really nothing is new under the sun. Uh, unprecedented is the word of the day. You've heard that a lot. These are unprecedented times. or These are unprecedented issues that we're dealing with. Are they though? I mean, sure, maybe this strain or the structure of this virus is different than the ones that have come before, but haven't we dealt with previous viruses? Haven't we seen different pandemics in history, natural disasters, wars, rumors of wars, the struggle between empires? We've seen all that happen. Christians have lived through that. And so sometimes it's helpful, maybe you've heard this phrase, that we would... Uh, well, you've heard the phrase, don't miss the forest for the trees. So sometimes it's helpful for us as Christians to back up and look at the forest. To again, look back at history, to see where we're at in this present age, and then trust in the promises of God for our future. And so that's what I'd like us to do in this series, just to back up and get some perspective. Get some clarity on, on what's going on we can very easily, uh, very easily become susceptible to the trees, to the issues of the day. We can be so focused on these issues, whether it be the pandemic, whether it be political division, the moral decline, uh, you know, government overreach, mandates, all these issues, we're focused in on the trees, but 
Again, it's helpful for us to back up and see the bigger picture here. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. If you are a believer, if you profess to know Christ and have a relationship with God, here's the question at the end of the day. Do you believe that God is in control of all of this? Do you believe that God is is sovereign, meaning he he reigns over all and he is in control of every event, virus, molecule in the universe and throughout history? Do you believe that God has absolute control? So I, I hope that we can answer that question this morning and we can answer that question by looking back at history at a time where God exercised and proved that he was absolutely in control. So why don't you open your Bibles uh, to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Now we're going to survey this book. Again, we're going to try to stay above the forest and not get caught in the trees. And so we're going to kind of parachute into this book at different points. But I want you to see the bigger picture, the big story in the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it's okay. There are Bibles strategically placed underneath the chairs I hope that you'd pick one of those up and read in the text. The book of Daniel or the prophet, or, or the prophet Daniel is, is placed um, along with the other major prophets. If you find Isaiah, that's a big book in the Old Testament. You turn to the right a little bit, past Ezekiel, past Jeremiah, Lamentations, they'll hit Daniel. Daniel is an incredible book. In fact, Daniel is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love the book of Daniel. I love the big picture, the big story that Daniel tells us. What comes into your mind when you think about Daniel? I I assume a lot of you think about Daniel in the lion's den, that famous Sunday school story, right? Which is true, it happened. Or maybe you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who endured the fiery furnace. Do you remember that story? Well, I want to let you know that the book of Daniel is more than a story about taming lions. It's more than a story about bending fire. In fact, the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. It's not about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It's about a king. And the book of Daniel is not about King Nebuchadnezzar, who seems to be a prominent figure in the book. It's about a higher king, A higher king, a king that raises other kings and and crushes them. A king that empowers nations and destroys them. A king that crowns the faithful and he humbles the proud. A king that makes promises and he keeps them. A king that brings redemption, hope, salvation to his people. You may not see this king in the history books, but he wrote them. It's his story. In fact, who, who is this king, you may be asking. And let's allow Darius, a pagan Persian king, to write his biography. Here's what King Darius says about this high king. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. He is the living God. There's our king. The living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. 
He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. This is the high king. This is who the story of Daniel is all about. God, the sovereign one over kings. And I hope today that just very simple application that you would trust him. That you would believe he is in control. He is in control of the events in history and also in control of your life. He is intimately aware of what's going on in your life, different circumstances, troubles, trials, and he is in control through them. He's sovereign. And I hope that the book of Daniel would prove that to be true to you. So the book of Daniel gives us four reasons to trust God, to put our faith in God. And you have your outline, I hope, with you. Uh, This little thing right here. Point number one. The reason that you can trust God is that he controls history. God controls history. Why don't you, uh, you're in Daniel, look at chapter 1. Let's, let's go to chapter 1. I want to give you some historical context before we read. The events that take place in this book take place in the 6th century B.C. or around there. In fact, Daniel's life spans somewhere between 620 and 520 B.C., Now, a lot happens in the Middle East during that time. It's really the collide of three world empires. And you might be familiar with some of them. The first empire, the world empire, is the empire of the Assyrians. I have a picture here of the Assyrian empire. This is the the breadth of their domain. In their empire, they're strong from around 800 to 600 B.C., And then the Babylonians come after the Assyrians. And I have another picture of the Babylonian domain here. And and obviously the great war hero, the king of Babylon, is the great Nebuchadnezzar. And we see a lot about him in the book of Daniel. But there's another empire that rises after the Babylonian empire. And that is the Persian empire. Now the Persian empire was notorious. In fact, Alexander the Great... uh, really looked at Cyrus, one of the great Persian kings, and emulated his world-conquering strategy after Cyrus. So this is a dominant world empire. You can see the breadth of their reign and rule went far across the Middle East. Now when we pick up the story in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, we see the rise of the Babylonian empire. We'll get to the Persians. But we see the Babylonian empire rising. And Daniel, his life is strategically placed at that rise. So look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There is a historical account of what happened. The people of Israel had been divided. They were divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This happened after Solomon. And so the kingdom was divided and and there was a sharp moral decline in the nation. The people were worshiping false gods. They were starting to commit sins and engage in the same idolatry that the pagan nations around them were engaging in. Although economically they seemed to be doing well, morally they were declining and fast. And so God prophesied judgment for the people of Israel. 
the northern tribes and the southern. God says you'll be punished, you'll be disciplined because of your sin. And so we see what happens in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, a fulfillment of that. And now it may seem to the people of Judah that God lost control. It seems as though God's stepping back and, and having you know, Nebuchadnezzar, this tyrant king, have his way. I mean, aren't these God's chosen people? Didn't God make explicit promises to the people of Israel and, and promise to preserve them, promise that they would dwell in safety and security? It seems as though, as we read this, God has lost control. And a lot of us maybe might think that way today. We look at our, the American nation, we see, doesn't it seem as though God has lost control here? Morally, we're, we're declining uh, greater uh, statistics about atheists and people who are disbelieving in God. It seems to be that God has lost control here. Well, we see in the next verse that that's not the case. God knows exactly what he's doing. It's happening exactly as he designed it. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord gave. There's what's really happening. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. With some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of the God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is Nebuchadnezzar's God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now that's some interesting, those are just details, or they seem to be. But what I want to show you is that this was prophesied, this was foretold by God hundreds of years before it happened. Look at Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5, should be on the screen. Isaiah was a prophet who preached, who prophesied in the land of Judah before the exile, before this happened in history. A hundred years before, estimated, give or take. And look at what Isaiah says will happen to Judah. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to where? Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isn't that amazing? This was written a hundred years, give or take, before the events happened, and the event was fulfilled to the T, to the detail. Who's in control here? Nebuchadnezzar or a higher king? Habakkuk, another prophet that spoke to Judah before the exile, God told Habakkuk, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, Babylon. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Second Kings 24.2, which is a historical account of the people of Israel after divided kingdom. Look at what happens here. Second Kings 24.2, the Lord sent against him. I don't know if I have these verses on the screen, but listen to them. The Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans. 
and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants and prophets. Who's in control here? Who's writing history? The Lord is. He's intimately in control, even when it seems for the people of God that all hope is lost. God shows and proves, no, I'm in control here. I'm raising nations and destroying them. Nebuchadnezzar, this worldly, proud king, we'll look at him a little bit more intimately later on, but in his pride, he thought he was the top dog. He thought he was charting his own destiny. He thought he was writing history for Babylon. What we see is that he's simply retracing the words that God has already spoken. Nebuchadnezzar is quite literally a pen in the hand of the great historian. Tim Challies writes in his book, Visual Theology, he says, the world is but a stage for the great storyteller. God is in control of history. He says in Isaiah 42, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they happen, I tell you about them. Wow. God is in control. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Ephesians 1.11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. There's not a rogue molecule in the universe not a rogue virus, not a rogue people or a rogue empire. Nothing surprises God. I want you to think about your life. Let's make this personal. I want you to think about your life for a minute. Think about every historical event that you've lived through. Some of you have lived through more than others. Not calling you old. Some of you have lived through more historical events than others. Think about the presidents that you've seen elected. Think about the different wars that you've seen or lived through. Think about the rise and fall of the economy. Think even about natural disasters, the pandemic. Do you believe that God is in or was in sovereign control of every single one of those events? Let's make it a little more personal. Think about your life. What brought you here today? What events happened Interactions, relationships brought you here this morning. Think about from early childhood to now. Think about the new births. Think about the deaths that you've lived through. Think about the joys. Think about the trials, the jobs, the relationships, even the diagnosis. Do you believe that God is in control of your life? Everything happened for a reason and he's working in each and every one of your lives and in each of the events that are in them. Absolutely he is. God, see, tells the people of Israel, even though it seems as though their world is unraveling, their nation is falling apart. Can you relate today? He is in control. He moves nations. He rises them and he allows them to fall. And he keeps his promise to the people he loves. So you can trust God because he controls history. Number two, you can have faith in this king because he employs his people. He uses his people to accomplish his purposes. Two truths are are inextricable in the Bible and you have to hold them at tension is that God is absolutely sovereign, but yet we as, as people are responsible. 
We're, we're responsible. We're held accountable for our actions. See, God's people don't just sit on their hands and then watch God do all the work around them in ooh and ah. We're engaged. We're participating. We're employed by him to do his work. And we see that happen with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's pretty incredible. I mean, we can learn from these guys. They, they were men of integrity. They held to their convictions. But we also see how God uses them. There's a bigger story here. We're going to skim through some of the stories in this book, okay? Like I said, we're going to stay above the forest. But let's look at a couple of the, the happenings in Daniel. In chapter 1, the four young men were taken captive along with others. We saw that happen. They were placed into Nebuchadnezzar's exclusive school. Okay, this was Babylon's Harvard, all right? The choice young men and women, all educated, all expenses covered. These are full scholarships, okay? And this is a brilliant move by Nebuchadnezzar. Take Jerusalem's finest and make them your finest. Teach them your culture. Teach them your literature. Make them servants in your court. This is the famous George Steinbrenner strategy, okay, of the Yankees. If you don't want to compete against them, then buy them and put them on your team so that you win. Nebuchadnezzar does that and brings these bright young men in order to build his team, his legacy. But look at how God works through the story. Daniel, at the very start, he makes a bold decision for the group. He says, I'm not going to eat the king's food, which would probably get him in trouble in normal circumstances. They're trying to breed him to be a strong, healthy young man. But he says, I'm not going to eat the king's food. And what happens in Daniel chapter 1, verse 9? God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Normally, rebelling to orders like that would cause his death. But what happened? God gave him favor. God's working here. The story continues. The four men, they go full-blown vegetarian. And after 10 days, it says they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than everyone else. Normally, you go full-blown vegetarian to go on a diet, not to gain weight and look bigger and fatter, right? But they did. God's working. And look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God, look at it again, gave. God's working here. He gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Despite circumstances, God grows them. God gifts them, and he strategically places them. We see at the end of the, that chapter, they're in the king's court. They have Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king in the world. They have his ear. God's working here. He's working to preserve his people. In chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Three men who will not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And their punishment is burning to death in a flaming furnace. Daniel chapter 3 verse 16. Look at what they say to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... I love that. If he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. 
Maybe he will deliver us, maybe he won't, but regardless, God is our employer, not you, Nebuchadnezzar. We serve him, ultimately. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel will not bow and worship idols either. His punishment is a den of lions. Darius, the king of the Persian Empire, says, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, Wait a minute, Darius knows who Daniel really serves. Darius knows Daniel is not ultimately his servant, that he serves the Most High. Look at how often he says serve. (laughs) Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And of course, yes, he did. God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. I think it should be plain and obvious when reading these stories in the book of Daniel that it's, it's not so much about the faithfulness of, of uh, God's people, which they are faithful, but God preserving them through history and employing them in different circumstances to accomplish his purpose. He is our sovereign king. He's our higher master. Yes, we submit to earthly authorities that he's given us. We have that in Romans 13, but... Ultimately, we're employed by him. He's our master. We serve a higher king. He moves us. He uses us. And he places us according to his plan. Whether he delivers us or not. Whether it goes well for us in life or or not. Whether the government comes in and tears apart our family or, or not. Who do we serve? We serve him. I want you to know that the king, the high king, has you at that job for a purpose. Your job. I want you to know that the high king has you in California right now for a purpose. He has you in the season of life for a reason. He knows exactly where he wants you and he places you. And you, Christian, just be faithful where God has you. And trust that he employs his people. He has you there for a reason. Third reason for us to trust God is that he rules over kings. He rules over kings. The history in the book of Daniel is remarkable. I mean, again, the collide of three world empires. And the fact that Daniel is the right hand, not only in the Babylonian empire, but he remains the right hand in the Persian empire, over decades? You know how, do you understand how crazy it is? Imagine a secretary of state through however many terms in different presidencies or presidencies. And then imagine China comes in and takes over. And then that same secretary of state becomes the right-hand man in China. That's mind-blowing. That's, what, that's where Daniel is. He has a strategic position. And so we have four kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar of Babylon, and then you have Darius and Cyrus of Medo-Persia. All four of these kings, by the way, rise and fall by the hand of God. But I want to focus on one, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he's a remarkable character. Remarkable character in the book of Daniel. He's the, the greatest king of the Babylonian empire. This man was proud. He was arrogant. And deservedly so. He was a seasoned war veteran. He conquered much of the known world. He was 
proud of his accomplishments, proud of his culture, proud of his empire. He built this magnificent city. His goal was that Babylon would be the coveted glory of the entire world. He had walls built 80 feet thick, 320 feet high. They were so wide that chariot races would take place on these walls. Just in case people forgot, the bricks of the wall bore the inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The hanging gardens were majestic. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Gardens that were compared to Eden with the most exotic plants. He had, at the time, the most technologically advanced watering system in his city. Herodotus, a Greek historian, said that Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. Nebuchadnezzar thought so too. Walking on his roof one day in Daniel chapter 4, you can turn there. Daniel chapter 4, he says this, verse 30. Look at what he says. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of who? My majesty. What an arrogant statement. And what a fool. Because look what happens next. The high king steps in and says, wait a minute. Your majesty? Let me show you who really rules. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Literally, the Hebrew word is, the kingdom has been removed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He wills. He is the King over kings. Daniel chapter 2. He changes time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar even said before, apparently it took him a while to get it, but Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 2 verse 47, he said, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. It's interesting, I preached this message. I've preached this message before. You know when I last preached it? In 2016? before the November election. Haven't things changed? Circumstances have, but this truth hasn't. Whatever president is in office, God is king over presidents. He's Lord over presidents. He is in sovereign control of whoever is elected president. Don't we see there's a supreme vote? God establishes kings and then causes them to fall. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that God is sovereign over kings, presidents, congressmen and women, rulers? He is. He's not surprised when the votes are cast. 
He elects and dethrones. He raises and humbles. The uh, book of Daniel is incredible. It's, um, there, there are forms of literature that are helpful. Uh, in, in Hebrew, there, there is this chiastic literature. It, a chiasm in Hebrew is that there are parallels in certain chapters, and they, as you come towards the middle, it's kind of a pyramid. There's a climax. There's a climax, a main point that the author wants to make. And so you see this chiastic structure in Daniel through Daniel chapter 2 and 7. So 2 and 7 have parallel stories and images. 3 and 6 have parallel stories and images. 4 and 5 have parallel stories and images. And then you get to the middle, the climax. And you know where the climax is in the book of Daniel? In Daniel chapter 4. After Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar realizes something. So look at Daniel chapter 4. Here is the point of Daniel Here is the point, I argue, of history, of the Bible. This is God's story right here. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. And note that it was said, uttered by a pagan world empire ruling king. This is what he said. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, after his humiliation, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed who? The Most High. I praised and honored Him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That is the point of your Bible. That's the point of history. God establishes His kingdom. and His kingdom endures forever. Pray that our leaders those who are placed over us would be humbled like Nebuchadnezzar, that they would realize that. They would come to a true, I believe, true saving knowledge of God. That they would know him intimately and obey his commands and and lead us accordingly. But even if they don't, our God's still sovereign. We serve a higher king and we trust him. We trust him. Point number four, point number four as we look at this survey of Daniel, we can trust God because he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. There's one promise in the book of Daniel we cannot ignore. We can't look over. Remember, Daniel was written to who? Written to the exiles in Judah, the people of God in the Old Testament. And there were explicit promises that God made to those people that he intends to fulfill and that have not yet been fulfilled. And by the way, we are included in the blessings and participators in those promises. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. We can't ignore this promise. Daniel's interpreting this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It's a dream describing the rise and fall of empires and then the last days. And look at verse 44. In those days, in the days of those kings, the last days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the previous kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. God promises while the people of Israel are in exile, he says, listen, the future kingdom's coming. My promises to you still stand. And I keep my promises, even though right now it doesn't seem like that. 
these promises will come to pass. We see another expansion of this promise, this vision in Daniel chapter 7. Why don't you turn over to Daniel 7? See this in your Bible. This promise of an everlasting kingdom. And the comfort, think about how comforting this is for the people of Israel who are in exile right now. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a what? Kingdom. That all peoples, oh wait a minute, how many of you have, are of Jewish descent? Okay, then that means all, the rest of us are, are Gentiles, or what the Bible would describe as Gentiles. When it says all people, those are all ethnicities there. That, that's, that's us. All people. All people. Here, here we're included in this blessing. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Understand this, the people of Israel knew this. A king is coming. And this king is coming to reign over a kingdom. He's like the Son of Man. The Old Testament leans forward in anticipation of a coming Messiah. This is what the people of Israel were looking for. A king who came to rule. But we see that there's some unfinished business this king has to do before he rules. He has to take care of their bigger problem. What's our big problem? Sin. He has to, like Daniel chapter 9 says, finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity. And so we realize that Jesus comes twice. We see on this side of history, Jesus came first as a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross. He did not come to rule and to reign, but it says in Matthew 20, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He lived the righteous life we couldn't live. He, he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And if we trust in Him, we have a Savior. We have surrendered our life to the High King and have relationship with Him. And then He went away. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He remains there until when? He comes again. And he comes to fulfill those specific, explicit promises that he gave in the Old Testament. He comes to establish his kingdom here. And let me tell you, the kingdom of Christ is better than any earthly or worldly kingdom. It's a kingdom where justice flourishes. A kingdom where God is in, finally on the throne and making decisions that would make the, right, the world right again. And he establishes his reign here that's why Jesus, in his earthly ministry, some say, oh, well, the kingdom came already when Jesus first came. No, no, no. Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's looking to the future now, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The kingdom of Christ is coming. It is near, but it is coming. And he's coming back. That's the point. That's the hope that Israel had, the people of Israel, is that God's going to keep his promises and our future king is coming. And we know that to be Jesus Christ. 
So Christian, let's take a step back, look at the forest here. What's God doing? Why is our nation in a rapid decline morally? Why does it seem as though these world empires are rising above us for the first time in hundreds of years? Why why does it seem as though God has let go? Well, yes, I heard it said, there's sin. And sin has consequences. But also, God has not let go. God is in control. And you have to see that. We can't get so caught up in the current issues and looking at the trees that we lose sight of God's sovereignty in all this. God is exercising his will and we can trust him. And if you are in Christ, if you know God through Jesus Christ, then you have a great hope in a future kingdom that's coming. And he will see you through to that day. So, Christian, trust God. Trust God who's in sovereign control of history. Trust a God who employs and uses his people in their present circumstances. Trust a God who rules over kings, who fulfills his promise. What a king. What a master to serve. We need to remember him and trust him in this evil day. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, sometimes it's good for us to take a step back and, and look at the forest. Look at the, the big plan. Look at what you are doing and what you've been doing throughout history. Sometimes we, we get so caught up looking at the trees, the issues of our life. And Lord, if we just look at those issues, then we lose hope. Because there's a lot of hopelessness. It's dim light looking at these big issues in our world. The issues of division, hate disagreements. God, if we get caught up in that, then we we could easily lose hope. But we shouldn't do that as Christians, Lord. We need need to look forward to the hope that we have in Christ, that he's coming again. He's going to make all wrongs right. He's going to bring us home to an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that endures forever. Thank you for Jesus, who gives us access to that kingdom, who, who provided a way for us to be right with God by his death and his resurrection. Pray for anybody in here who does not know Christ, who doesn't have that hope, that reassurance. I pray that they would trust Christ today. They would surrender their life to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who's coming again. And they would have new hope. I pray for all of us who do believe, Lord, that we would just trust you. That's just as simple as that, just trust you. When we turn on the news, when we read the news, Maybe we wouldn't get so anxious or, or caught up in the things happening because we know you're in control. And if you're in control, then we'll be okay. Help us to trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and stand.